This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom lekulam. And the one and only, Joshua Molina. There have to be hundreds of me. There, there's a lot of Josh Molinas, but there's only one Joshua. That's right. He's right. right here in this studio. Today on the show, we're bringing you two Jewish guests and then one special Gentile-ish segment. Our first guest is Chief Rabbi Sir Ephraim Mervis. That's right, the Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth. He's the guy who spent Coronation Shabbat at Prince Charles's palace. You know, if I was an American rabbi, I would be so pissed. All you have to do in like Great Britain is be a rabbi. It's like you're automatically a sir rabbi. That's just but not no right. No one else is chief rabbi, sir. So this is this. And is, nobody else gets uh, royalty for Shabbos goy. That is exactly Charles. True. Could you flip the switch on for me? <laughs> Our second guest is not a sir, but a podcaster. It's Zach Rosen. You can hear him on the Best Advice Show and on Sleep's parenting podcast. Mom and Dad are fighting. And after all of that goodness, we're bringing you another installment of The Archive, our series where we explore the collection of the National Library of Israel. We've looked at artifacts belonging to Sir Isaac Newton and Maimonides in our previous installments. And today we are bringing you pretty surprising letters Gandhi wrote to the Jews of Bombay and also to Hitler. Do you think that will make us reconsider Gandhi or Hitler? (laughs) I think it's the greatest buddy comedy (laughs) ever made. Gandhi and Hitler. In a stolen Porsche in a journey across America. We will have to. I am so excited, Liel. This this is your You're listening to me, journey. Aaron Sorkin. This is your <laughs> next show. Joshua Molina is Gandhi, I hope. I'll play either. I'll be I'll honest. Either, I yeah. need to work. But I, I will say I did just see you on TV. You Josh did? Molina. Oh, yes. You were on this the morning. TV show this morning. Yes. Today, as advertised. Yeah, it was fun. I played pickleball. <laughs> I'm not sure why. But they had me play pickleball for a little teaser. I like they were like, actor Joshua Molina on to talk about his new hit podcast. But first, here's a few shots of him playing pickleball. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I was winded by I, it. So I didn't realize you <laughs> were honest. a pickleballer. I've got a foot on the pickleball court. I've only played <laughs> five or six times. The dot cast is just gaga for pickleball. So that's how I got into it. If only there were Gaga for Gaga. Yes, that's right. Or if only there was actually, (laughs) could we petition, Sir Tom Stoppard is a sir, correct? Indeed, indeed. Can we petition him to write some some pickleball? I suspect his next play, should he produce one, will be largely about pickleball, yeah. He's very finger on the pulse. (laughs) Vienna, 19. He's very clickbait. 39. (laughs) A bunch of Jews holed up in an apartment, past the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> By becoming pickleballers. Clunk. I thought it was really, really fun. And you went on and you talked about us. And I, you know, it was great. It was exciting to be able to go on the Today Show and talk about unorthodox. It was really Come fun. On. I thought you were amazing. But I now need more rabbinic explication. Because here's the thing. Like, TV to me is like the weirdest medium in the I mean, live talk TV. Because you're sort of having a normal human conversation. But you're clearly not having a normal human conversation. Right, you're simulating spontaneity. How do you deal with this? I think just over time, I've gotten better at it. I used to, I mean, I will admit that I still, every time I agree to do such an interview, I dread it until the very moment (laughs) it's done. Although usually during it, I'm like, oh, this isn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I've gotten just better at simulating uh, genuineness and warmth and spontaneity. (laughs) Does that trait help you, by the way, with like family? Uh, Nope. (laughs) <laughs> I find no. It's like, oh, what a what a charming they don't buy it. dinner. They don't buy it. They see right through it. <laughs> Not to make this about me, but like there is a thing that I do if I'm in a conversation 
where I start interviewing the person. If I feel like I don't really have much to say, I'll just like start asking them a bunch of questions. Like I can't help it, but, but be that's like, actually a lovely quality because you're showing interest in the other person. I don't have. But that. I don't know that I always am. Like I think I might just like flip it on. Ben's like, I know what you do. You just like oh, start interviewing something. Oh, yeah. No, I've I've weaponized this technique because I don't only just ask questions, but I always like there'll be one or two questions like, oh, so what do you do? Oh, do you like it? And then the third question would be something completely psychotic. Like, tell me about the worst experience you've ever had in your childhood. And the other person would be like, wait, what? I feel so vulnerable. I'd not be like, that's right. You're in my show now. You're a gotcha journalist. That's yeah, right. that's exactly. So I feel like anything else, anything else not on national I, TV. I did not go on TV this week, but I had an equally mortifying experience. Because uh, for, for I don't think I it was have, mortifying. I will say, I watched it. It was great. Oh, for, he pulled it off beautifully, but <laughs> I would have been totally. Fatutst? Absolutely, Yes. Um, for Klimt, if you will. Sure. As the Gentiles say. But I had this great, equally, I think, mortifying experience. So I have a, a tween daughter who just turned 12. And she looks at me with a sense of like mild bewilderment that I succeed in accomplishing minor tasks. Like if I, if I eat a sandwich, she's like, oh, look, you kept the cheese and the lettuce and the tomatoes between the two pieces. Good job. <laughs> like I'm savage. just like a completely <laughs> adult person. And as such, when it comes to music, the thing that she holds dearest, she believes I'm an absolute moron who literally have never heard of anything. And I could tell her that, you know, I kissed Patti Smith on stage or <clears throat> went to like the third ever Radiohead concert or spent a drug-fueled night with Ghostface Killer or had like a long relationship with Leonard Cohen. None of that impresses her in the least because the only thing that matters is what her friends who literally discovered music Two months ago, I mean this literally like, oh my God, look, Miley Cyrus invented music. Think about music. So the other day we're sitting and we're talking about music because I'm trying to sound cool. And I, I name drop in a desperate effort to please Lil Baby. It was a rapper I genuinely really like. And she just stops and looks at me and says, you know something contemporary and worthwhile in my world? And I say, yeah. And we talk and she's like, okay, you know what? Make me a playlist, wow. which is the most dreadful thing a 12-year-old yeah. could say to her father because it is clearly a fucking, it's not even a test. It's a quest. It's like <laughs> Lord of the Rings type of thing because when you read these fairy tales when you're a kid, you always like see those gnomes posing like incredible conditions like, find me the head of a goose who lives <laughs> in a mountain. And like, who thinks like that? You know who thinks like that? Parents of 12-year-old girls think like that because she's mm. like, um, no classical music. I was like, what's classical music? She's like, Wu-Tang. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Preference to like trap and like drill and go with it. And then as soon as you start doing it, you realize I'm making a playlist to my 12-year-old daughter. So it can sound like Snoop Dogg's text with his drug dealer, nor can it sound like, you know, an OBGYN textbook, which is like 85% of all rap songs contemporary. Like I can't introduce my daughter to this. I spent like seven hours in this thing, is what I'm saying. And you texting, think she hasn't heard any of that? Uh, no, no, no. She's heard a lot of it, but it, it won't be coming. Oh, my Cure God. the curation. She was like, put, I, I recommend like, one cut of just utter filth, just to be cool. Well, look, you're going to hand her a mixtape, and she's not going to have any idea what to do with it. So it doesn't actually matter what you put on it. I, yeah, what is this video? <laughs> Spotify playlist. Oh, wow. I was texting with producer Josh Cross like one in the morning. He's like, can I put Bobby Schmerd on this list? He's like, just, just do whatever you want. Just stop bothering <laughs> so me. So when will she listen to it? 
She's listening to it as as we record. Wait a minute. Can we publicly share this playlist with our listeners? Oh, yeah, I, would, I would love to. What's I, the playlist called? Oh, uh, Father is a Rap Genius. Because <laughs> I'm cool. We are going to share Liel's super special dad playlist, but we're not going to put the link in our show notes. We're going to put the link in our newsletter. So you have to sign up for our newsletter. See what I did there. So go to tabletm.ag slash unorthodox newsletter to sign up and fire up that playlist. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. All right. Our first story, New York City public schools don't have the final two days of Passover off next year. A petition is trying to change that. Usually Easter and Passover happen at close enough that that week-long break can cover both of them. But this year, there's, they're apparently three weeks apart. It's all the Gentiles' fault because they made Easter super hard to calculate. Like, Pesach's always the same day in Nissan every year. Like, it's very easy for anyone to keep track. I'm just blown away as a Californian now that New York used to give all eight days of Passover off or make sure that they were they coincided with spring break. Well, all the teachers used to be Jewish. Ah, that's what it is. <laughs> right. And, and the unions were like, we're just going to take our holidays. Because my own daughter went to public school and in fifth grade, the big prize at the end of fifth grade as you graduate from fifth grade is that you get to go on a trip to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and her year, they scheduled it for the first two days of Passover, the Seders. <laughs> and when I saw this, I was appalled and I went and I spoke to the principal and they said, you just can't do this. This is literally the most widely observed Jewish holiday. You can't have the D.C. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened when I came back the following fall. They had not changed the dates. And then we had this big meeting where you had to whatever air, whatever you wanted to say about the upcoming trip. And I said, again, this can't happen. I said, by the way, Passover, you don't need a Jewish calendar to discover when Passover is. You need a calendar. It's on all calendars. <laughs> and they said, well, we didn't look at a calendar. I said, you scheduled a trip to D.C. without looking at a calendar. How did you manage to avoid Easter? You did do that. <laughs> And, Plus, I uh, bet you know when Oscar season is. <laughs> exactly. L.A. crowd. Anyway, I re- and to my horror, then a Jewish parent spoke after me and said, it's no big deal. I felt very undercut by that. And what uh, happened? Happy ending. I, I literally just said, I mean, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but I said to the principal, you know how I was on the West Wing? I think a good news story would be West Wing actor gets political <laughs> because I'm going to go everywhere anybody will give me an interview and talk about the absurdity and the uh, absolute outrageousness of your schedule. And so it was all changed. Uh, and I was a chaperone on the trip because, of course, I was out of work. And uh, I went on the trip. And my daughter was not ashamed. to. to and to her credit, she said, if they don't change the dates, I won't go. I'll stay home for the Seders. But then I was the weird chaperone in the back of the bus eating kosher for Passover self-heating meals. that had, like, a little <laughs> envelope you slapped, and then it bubbled. And the kids were like, what is wrong with your father? But, uh, but happy like, ending. He's making... At least most of this religious stuff up, right? It's not real. (laughs) Speaking of maybe not embracing other types of food, here's a headline from the Jerusalem Post. Dozens of Russians get food poisoning from shawarma. Ten hospitalized. 35 Russians reportedly got food poisoning from eating shawarma, sparking a criminal investigation opened by Russian authorities on Thursday. The popular Middle Eastern meat dish, typically made from lamb or chicken, was served at a cafe called I Want Shawarma in Brotsk, a city in Russia's Irkutsk region. First Ooh. of all, that someone would open an eatery and call it, I want shawarma. Like, I'm kicking myself. This is exactly what I should have done with in my Brotsk. life. I should have done, I should have been the proprietor with like a wife beater and like a big old chain I of a place called, want I want shawarma. And then you ask the customer, what do you want? 
And the customer was like, I want your arm. I was like, you came to the right place. Here you go. But the funny thing is that I, I've actually been to said town because I, I wrote my what? dissertation on the Trans-Siberian Railway. I was very bored by all the books I had to read and all the stuff I had to write. And I had absolutely no, no motivation. So my wife and I got on the train and uh, went on the Trans-Siberian for, for some months. And So you are an, you are not a person of moderation. You were not content no, to no, read no, a no, book no, no, about no. a Trans-Siberian Railroad. Oh, like 100%. You no. went on it. And so here we are in Irkutsk. And we wake up. This all connects to the Sharma, I promise. We, we wake up one morning and we're right outside Lake Baikal. We're 750 feet from Lake Baikal. It is the largest body of fresh water on planet Earth. And I go to the faucet. And there is no water. Mm. I was like, guys, you had 750 feet to connect me <laughs> to that. And in Lake Baikal and in the entire Irkutsk region, which is in Siberia, in case you're wondering, famous open air prison for Russian leaders for, for you know millennia, they eat this thing called the omul fish, which both smells and tastes like garbage. Uh, like literal garbage. Uh, not that yeah. I've ever what eaten it. What is it, it omulfish? Omulfish. It's like the species that only lives in this thing uh, and <laughs> and gives you like really the most absolutely atrocious diarrhea you'll ever eat. So I'm about... I'm is, in. Oh, this is By all way, you a said very... diarrhea you will ever eat and I, we are not editing that out. Diarrhea you will ever have or eat because it's the wow. same thing with the omulfish. This is all oh, wow. a very long-winded way of saying that if meat in Siberia was worse than the food that is usually available in Siberia, that must have been the worst freaking shawarma. If you go to Trans-Siberian McDonald's, don't order the filet of fish Oh, there, there is no <laughs> Trans-Siberian. There is no, there's nothing in Siberia. I will say I'm There's Chinese smugglers uh, bringing, you know, three-day-old lamb to sell it, you know, off the train. <laughs> you know why? Because I want shawarma. That's right. Which I, is probably where it came from. I'm, it probably came from Mongolia. And it was probably four days old with no refrigeration. Just I'm saying. really honestly surprised that no one has connected this to the Mossad. Oh, like poison, it, like lacing shawarma is like the next creature. Shawarma is wonderful. I actually don't think I've ever had shawarma. Oh, I, I just got shawarma. a lot of lot of weird details. looks. I want shawarma. I want shawarma. Let's I think go. We should fix it like right now. Should we go after this? I think we should go. You right know what now. that news story makes me want to do? Eat shawarma. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for our last story, let's head back to Austria. We were there last week. Do let's. So this is from the Times of Israel. Austrian writers demand provinces drop anthems penned by Nazi composers. Austrian authors demanded that a region change its anthem Wednesday after its composer was revealed to be an active Nazi, rekindling a row that now involves more than half its provinces. The anthems were all written by composers or writers who actively supported. What is this active? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is an act? I'm like an active Nazi. I work level. out. I get 10,000 yes. uh, goose three, steps a three day. Three times a day. I'm a Nazi I'm a, Peloton. I'm a Fitbit Nazi. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's in an open letter. It said that Six million Jews, but 10,000 steps. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, you could really rebrand a death march, honestly. <laughs> and I'm adding nothing to this. <laughs> it's okay. The show's already been pulled off the I air. Like, so <laughs> The so, death march brought to you by Nike. <laughs> okay, so in an open letter, these authors said that the composer of Bergenland's anthem, written in 1936, was a Nazi party member. They said that it would be a, quote, great exemplary signal if a new anthem could be written. A new anthem since 1936. Feels like it might be time. That, quote, reflects the spirit and work of today's generations and artists who were born and grew up in Bergenland. If only we changed Bergenland's anthem, no one would associate Austria with Nazis anymore. <laughs> Guys, we're one song away. <laughs> but historian Herbert Brettel said the lyrics to the song were not problematic, just its composer's association with the Nazi regime. 
Who? Oh, no. Art and the artist. This is a classic uh, quandary. It really is. I have no trouble separating the art from the artist, but the artist has to die first. Say more. Really? Yeah. I like my Edith Wharton. I like, I'll listen to Wagner. I don't want to watch a Mel Gibson movie because he's alive and I don't want to put a dollar in his pocket. So huh. I, yeah, I'm good with separating the art from the artist, but the art, the artist has to have the good taste to die. And their work should be in the public domain, ideally. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sure. <laughs> so all those Wagner right. streams so are not families. going to like... Fritz Wagner. Uh, what in what is your right take, Leon? Like you only shallower. I I. <laughs> That's a good tagline I, the, for you. <laughs> yeah, the the separation's complete. I I can care less if it's great art. It's great art, and in fact, I kind of perversely love the sort of Strom und Drang, if you will, that led the artist. Like I love to see that as a struggling person. Like I listen to Kanye, who's a mentally ill, you know, nut job. I was like, you could hear this kind of you know fight this internal turmoil and chaos. And like, of course, this person is a raven, lunatic, Hitler, aficionado slash, like, look. That stuff sometimes overlaps with genius. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah, great. Bring it on. I love it. you love like a mad Where else are we supposed to get great, great art? Sane people? I I'm I'm torn over this, but I mostly cannot get over the fact that who didn't rebrand after 1936 in Austria? Like, who didn't say, like, yeah. let's get a, let's just a fresh, should have been a, meeting like a little coat of paint, tilt that anthem a little bit Three to the left, to the right. make to the it right. staccato or something. I don't know. Like, no one thought to do anything since 1936. I don't know. That to me is a little worrisome. It's not Deutschland über alles. It's a Deutschland über most things. <laughs> most is. Yeah. So Bergenland, we we're here actually to help you. We can we can make a new anthem for you. So if you just just hit us up on orthodoxtitlebank.com. Here's your new anthem. Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. Hey. And then uh, and then everything will be forgiven. It's a waltz. Yeah. Our Jew of the Week is royalty. He is Sir, Chief Rabbi Sir Ephraim Sir Mervis. I think you're just supposed to say Sir after every third word. I think that is the etiquette. He joins us to talk about his experience at the royal coronation, his interfaith work, and most importantly, his favorite football team. Which is it in the Ted Lasso universe? Listen to this. Chief Rabbi Sir Ephraim Mervis, welcome to Unorthodox. Hi, great to be here. This is so exciting for us. I feel like we need to be like a little bit more proper in your presence. Are we doing okay? Are we like sitting up straight? So far, I'm, like, so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very nervous. We're also I, dressed up for you. We're wearing jackets. I am <laughs> very, very informal. It's just lovely to be part of your company here. I think for a lot of Americans, the idea of a chief rabbi, just we, we don't get it. We know so many rabbis and who's in charge of here and denominations. Could you tell us a little bit about what the job of chief rabbi is and what like a typical a non-coronation day is like for you? <laughs> and, and British Jews never fight, right? You all agree on everything. <laughs> so we're a very regular Jewish community in Britain. My role used to be chief rabbi of the British Empire. And it started in 1704, and then the title was Rabbi of London, and it changed at a later time. Believe it or not, I'm only the 11th incumbent since 1704. Uh, wow. So it's it's a role which... <laughs> All blessed with longevity. Exactly. Baruch Hashem. Long may it last. And I have very illustrious predecessors who were respected, not so much because of the title, but because of the people they were. 
they carried a lot of significance with them because they conveyed our wonderful Jewish traditions, which were reflected through their preachings, through their teachings, through their public responses to the issues of the day. And this is something which we continue to strive to do. So yes, my role is a formal one. Within communities, I am the ultimate religious authority of a group of communities. It's called the United Synagogue. I know you've got one here, which is conservative in America. Ours is Orthodox. And that covers many of our communities where I'm the single religious authority and the rabbis are under me, etc. And within the same group, you have one single president and then every synagogue is a local branch. And therefore, in terms of religious authority, it is an attempt to have a one-size-fits-all for all communities. It works wonderfully in many respects, but in others, it doesn't work so well because you need individuality and you want to give the freedom of expression to communities to to operate in the way that they wish to. But it's fascinating that on all my visits to America, people marvel at our system and they envy it. Whereas I'm thinking, gosh, if only we had the freedom of opportunity yeah. that existed mm. in America and we didn't have such a rigid system. But the rigidity guarantees that we have stability, that we can be on top of maintaining standards that we can guarantee that hopefully we will have an outstanding, relevant, appealing mainstream orthodoxy. And by and large, we are succeeding in doing that. Very recently, you were a big part of a certain global event, the coronation of King Charles III. What was that Shabbos like? Oh, it was a Shabbos like no other. In fact, there is one Shabbos that can be compared to. It took place in 1902, which was the last <laughs> time a coronation took place on a Shabbos. And interestingly, we reenacted a lot of what happened then when Chief Rabbi Herman Adler attended the coronation at Westminster Abbey. Uh, but apart from that, it was absolutely extraordinary, a deep privilege for me to represent the Jewish communities of Britain and the Commonwealth. And there was a special part of it, which was historic, the very first time that other faiths were included in the coronation ceremony. And uh, I was honored to be asked to do that. There was some doing, right? Because there were some things. You couldn't just take an Uber to Westminster Abbey. You, you had to get there on foot. There were some uh, machinations. How did you prepare? First of all, it was attending in a church and in addition on Shabbat. And there are halachic considerations for this to encourage us, not just to allow us, but to encourage us to do this. The halachic concept is called Mishum Eva. It is right on such an occasion, given a request. It's actually a command. That's the term that's used, a command from the king to attend. One must do that, and it was my privilege to do so. But as you mentioned, Shabbat presented a challenge. <laughs> we didn't have to do anything about it, because very soon after the date, 6th of May, was announced, Buckingham Palace got in touch with my office and conveyed the message that the king and queen were inviting my wife and myself to spend Shabbat with them. And so we spent Shabbat in St. James's Palace, and that was a very special experience. They put us up with them so that I'd be able to walk on the day to the coronation. That's amazing. How is their kosher food? <laughs> oh, well, so we've had many palace experiences, different palaces around the country, and they always go to the ends of the earth to facilitate us. 
uh, on this particular occasion to bring in a kosher caterer, supervise Shabbat as well. They asked for a menu, and uh, you know we said we'd like cholent in the pa- in the palace. <laughs> you know, every time we went through experiences there, we were thinking, is this the first time this has ever happened? <laughs> and probably it was. And we had a specific request. There's a dish called coronation chicken, and uh, we had that. Uh, for the occasion. What's a coronation chicken? Oh, you, my wife would be far better than me to explain. It's it's diced chicken pieces together with a delicious sauce, and it's served cold. But you also had coronation cholent. That's impressive. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was great. So what, one thing always struck me when I read about the British monarchy, which, like all Americans, I do obsessively, it seems to me like this very rule-bound tradition set society when i read about you know the royal family it seems to me like they live a very from life right you know exactly where you're sitting you know exactly the blessings you say you know exactly when to get up when they're like isn't that like basically like what we do you know a lot of our comments at the time related to tradition to formality to being rooted in the past the royal family do that very well sometimes it creates issues as we're currently aware of but overall it's wonderful to see, and they are very normal human beings. And in all our interactions with various members of the royal family, they've been charming, wonderful, very hospitable, very caring. And for us, the most important thing of all, they care about Jews and Judaism. I saw that with the late Queen and Prince Philip. I see that today with the King and Queen and also with Prince William and Kate and other members of the royal family, they care. They care about all faiths. You know, we are privileged that we're living in 21st century Britain, which can put on a coronation ceremony of this kind and can genuinely reach out to other faiths, inviting us to participate. I thought a lot about you during that weekend because when I, when I looked at you and, and looked at King Charles, I thought, here are two people who have nearly impossible jobs. Here are two people who represent tradition in an age, not just of modernity, but a sort of supersonic modernity where, where every assumption that we have, every tradition that we have is tested. How do you, as chief rabbi, hold this tension of being the representative of tradition? And is that something you discuss with King Charles? We've had many discussions, but with regard to your question, it is an issue that I contemplate on. We in Judaism are blessed because our Torah is both timeless and timely. Take Shabbat as an example. We've been doing it for thousands of years, but it is more relevant today in our fast-moving, creative, progressive 21st century than it has ever been before. The world needs to take a step back one in seven days. We need a digital detox day. Our society recommends that people who aren't blessed with Shabbat should opt for one day a week in order to do what we do. It's family time, it's community time, it's a time in which we prioritize everything that's really important in life. And so too with all of our mitzvot. Yes, we're rooted in the past, but we're very much a proactive and proud part of the present going into the future. You know, something I've been moved by is your your history of interfaith work. And so you represent the Jewish community, not just within, but but also externally. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with, with the Anglican community, with the Muslim community? So chief rabbis have always prioritized interfaith. It was one of my predecessors, Chief Rabbi Hertz, who in 1942, together with Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, 
created the first interfaith organization in the world. It was the Council of Christians and Jews. It was in the middle of the Holocaust. And that's where it all started. CCJ, the British Council of Christians and Jews, then moved outwards to become the ICCJ, the International Council of Christians and Jews. And today I place interfaith activity as one of my top priorities. And in fact, our prime area of engagement is Jewish-Muslim relations, particularly since the Abraham Accords, which has opened windows of opportunity which we didn't have before. And in fact, the reason why I'm in New York right now is because of the Abraham Accords and because of the relationships that I've strengthened together with Muslim colleagues. I'll be speaking at a meeting of the Muslim World League in the United Nations alongside Sheikh Mohammed Al-Issa, who is the Secretary General of the Muslim World League, with whom I've established a very good rapport. I met up with him in Abu Dhabi. I've had him in my office in London. And together we are working on a number of initiatives to strengthen Jewish-Muslim relations. He paid a visit to Auschwitz, and there have been so many other developments, and I'm certainly not the only player here. I'm one amongst many. But, you know, we we often highlight the fact that our world today, sadly, is moving in a direction towards extremism, the radicalization of members of faith, hatred and xenophobia. The great news is there is two-way traffic. We are also moving in a very positive and constructive way, and we have established excellent relationships with leaders of the Muslim world. And I believe that there's a lot of room for hope in that area. So, Rabbi, I, I can't grapple with all this optimism. This is this is more, this cheer <laughs> is more than British. I could take. Sure. So it is now my duty to ask a question, which this show's rabbinic advisor, Menachem Butler, informed us that the weekend of the coronation was also the yurt site of a medieval martyr in England killed for being a Jew. How do you grapple with memory, including some very difficult history for British Jews? It's because of a bitter past that we must work towards a sweeter future. And yes, in Britain, as is the case in many other parts of the world, we did have a very bitter past. We were expelled from the country in 1290. We only came back a number of centuries later. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism exists in the UK today, as it does throughout Europe, as it does in America right now. It's a sad reality of the times in which we are living. However, there is a happy narrative existing alongside it. I don't for one moment want us to ignore the dangers of anti-Semitism and the tragedies of the past, which God forbid could be repeated. But that surely must empower us to work all the harder towards educating people, towards establishing a good and healthy rapport, opening our synagogues for school children and students and others to visit to show them we don't have horns coming out of our heads, establish close personal ties. And for me, actually, the biggest challenge is to guarantee that the very healthy relationships that exist at the top of the pyramid amongst global faith leaders will filter down to grassroots level. It's not happening quickly enough. That's what we need to work on. So I'm full of initiatives. For example, in the UK, together with the Archbishop of Canterbury, we established a program called In Good Faith. We matched up rabbis and priests from right around the country to be couples so that they'd come together to general sessions that we led, but then they'd go off to their own regions and operate together in order to guarantee that members of their communities would learn from each other and have constructive engagement. I'm taking that one step further 
in half a year's time. We're calling it Caravan of Peace. It's an initiative which has been carried out here in North America. We're taking a leaf out of your book. And we're going to be sending 15 rabbis, 15 priests and 15 imams from the UK to Abu Dhabi. And there, giving them seminars, giving them inspiration, and let them come back and let them spread that message together with numerous other initiatives. And we have many champions for this. And King Charles III is one such champion. And what happened at the coronation reflects a desire to build bridges to guarantee that through understanding we will move forward. Just two weeks ago, I was in Edinburgh. I addressed the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. This was nine years after my previous address. My previous address came at a time when we reached a nadir in relationships with the Church of Scotland. They transpired to produce a work called The Inheritance of Abraham, which was highly anti-Semitic, denied the rights of the Jewish people to have a state of Israel, a supersessionist theory. And we worked on that. What I did was to establish learning sessions, rabbis and priests in Scotland, And when I returned two weeks ago and addressed the assembly, it was a celebration because they had turned around. And it was thanks to cooperation, dialogue, meeting up with people. The prophets of old were people who gave hope to the nation. That's what I believe rabbis today should be doing. So I'm proud to be an ambassador of hope and positivity. Nothing you say will will change that because we have to give the good news stories as well. Our community is awash with negativity. Thank God there's an incredible amount of positive things happening. Let's share that news. Baruch Hashem. Hope and positivity. I love that so much. While you are in New York, is there anything you're really excited to do? Ah, Just walk around the streets. What an incredible place. Have a a knish. (laughs) Are there things that you cannot get, Jewish things, that you could absolutely not get? In the United Kingdom. That used to be the case. They used to say it took 20 years for anything happening in New York to 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 get to London. But now it's instant. You know, we're living in a different world. The entire world is one little village. And it's very exciting that we can share so much and work together, which is what we're doing in in such a wonderful way. So I've, I've already confessed to being slightly obsessive with the royal family. And when the entire affair, if you will, with with Prince Harry happened, I thought, and, and I want your take whether or not my thinking is insane about this, it struck me as a very Jewish story. A person kind of going a little bit off the derech, who was born into a family, just doesn't want to do this tradition anymore, mom and dad, you know, leaving behind to go seek freedom and assimilation elsewhere, which it just seemed to me like a really Jewish story. Is that just a crazy thought? I think it's sad that when there is division in families, we suddenly think that it's a Jewish story. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Very good answer. (laughs) Uh, And and there's good news as well. We've got wonderful Jewish families, and we've got Shlombites, and uh, the royal family's a normal family, and we wish them well. Please, God, they'll get on better with each other. And so we have uh, have one more. We've saved the hardest question for last. We would let producer Josh Cross ask the real tough question question, if you don't mind. So I also asked this to your predecessor, and it's extremely important. Which football team do you support? <laughs> so I support Tottenham Hotspur. Ah! And I'll Come tell on, you, Spurs. it's great supporting Tottenham Hotspur, and I'll tell you why. You see, if you're an Arsenal supporter, every time you don't win the league, you are 
absolutely despondent and saddened. Why? Because your natural place is at the top. <laughs> right now, Arsenal came second. They're all sad. If you're a Spurs supporter, we know we're never going to win the league. So therefore, we just enjoy life. It's just like being a Mets fan, Chief Rabbi. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a Jew. Thank you for bringing all this hope and positivity to us. Chief Rabbi Sir Ephraim Mervis, would you accept the honor of being the Chief Rabbi of the Unorthodox Podcast? <laughs> Are you allowed to? Is that conflicting? Uh, I'll have to take it to higher circles of people. It'll need to go through motions and resolutions. <laughs> and I'll let you know in 10 years' time. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Sounds very Thank you so much for, you, for sitting Rabbi. with us okay. and sharing your Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks to all of you for everything you're doing. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Mailbox Got a letter in the mailbox Got a letter in the mailbox Mailbox All right, let's go to our mailbox. More accurately, our inbox. This first letter comes from Aaron Frank in West Hartford, Connecticut. He says, hi. Sorry. I love a letter that starts with an apology. I forgive you, Aaron, for whatever it is. He says, sorry, I am so late with this letter, but your conversion episode was so enlightening. It is never too late, Aaron, to give us a compliment. Courtney Hazlett answered one of my burning questions that I've always been afraid to ask. Should I treat Jews by choice as special? You treat all Jews as special, Aaron. (laughs) Contrary to the mean-spirited letter you read, I am awed and honored by anyone who chooses to join us and the work they put in to do so. But can I also ask some halachic questions? Why is Ruth considered the first Jew by choice? Wasn't that Abraham? And after Abraham, there was Sarah, both Jews by choice. This is not meant to diminish what Ruth did, but why is she considered the first? Another question, how did we get from Ruth's simple declaration that she is with her mother-in-law and now a member of her tribe to the lengthy process required of Jews by choice today? That is an amazing letter. Thank you, Aaron Frank. I don't know the answer to any of this. Aaron, you're asking amazing questions here. And as you can imagine, because this is Jews we're talking about, the answers would take about three days to fully explicate. But very briefly, here it goes. The entire story of the book of Genesis is a story of the Jewish people becoming. It's like a massive family drama. It's like succession before succession with all kinds of struggles culminating in this one weird family becoming something grander, becoming a people. As you will recall, that was the essence of Hashem's promise to Abraham. I will make you into into a massive people. 
And so, yeah, technically, you could even go ahead and say, as some Jewish theologians did, that, well, Adam was the first Jew, because, hey, aren't we all coming from him? But I think Ruth gets pride of place because her act came at a later stage when everything was kind of clearly defined, when responsibilities and even more pressingly liabilities, shall we say, were already very obvious and visible. And she just came in one simple act of love and devotion and faith, joined the party. Which leads us to your second question, which is also amazing. Why can't it just be as simple today? Well, mostly because another development we've seen is that Jewish life requires not just believing, but doing of any sort, because the mere statement is a tremendously important first step. But the book of Ruth didn't end with Ruth's statement. It began there. And what followed were a whole host of actions that Ruth took. Her active conversion, so to speak, didn't just end with saying, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, wherever you go, I'll go, etc. It was the beginning of a journey that led her to her exalted place in Jewish history. Another reminder for all of us that when it comes to being Jewish, two things apply. First of all, we are all converts. We all choose every day to be Jewish. And second of all, the way we choose is by doing exactly what Ruth did and doing something. It could be learning something. It could be practicing something, observing something, just holding space with other Jews. But this is not a religion that allows you in just on the basis of a declaration of faith. As true today as it was back then. And now to, you know, something equally Talmudic that we will need to parse. This comes to us from listener Mark Meaches. I think I'm saying your name wrong. Please write back to correct me. I'm going to call you Meiches. Mark Meiches. Mark M. Mark M. writes, loved the call with Josh's mom and her insight into names. But unless I heard wrong, you totally skipped over something. When Josh's mom first came on the line, Stephanie said, welcome, Fran. Um, Fran? Is she Fran or Francis or Franny or Francesco or dot, 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 question mark? Frangela. From, from Mark. So thank Frangela. you for the question. First of all, thank you for enjoying my mom and sister. And that doesn't sound right. Don't enjoy my mom and sister. You just, you mind your own business, Mark M. But I will say this, my mother's given name, Francis Flora Molina, name Michaels. That is her full name. And I, now I'm remembering that we have a we have a, like a name thing in my family altogether because unless I'm mistelling this story, my parents met on a blind date when they were both students at Cornell University. And my mother claims and my dad disputes that on the date he said, Don't call me Bobby. His name is Robert Bob Molina. So maybe we're maybe we're a little bit uh, sensitive about our names in my family. Francis it's in the Florida, DNA. What a great Francis name. Florida. I agree. I'm not sure. That, I don't know if she delights in it. But I, I like it. Francis Flora. So my sister is a Fran, but only to me. Her name is Francesca, which uh, people are always like, how is your sister named Francesca and why? Uh, his Hebrew name is Yaakov. <laughs> you know, my kids just the other day, because we go to a lot of baseball games and we watch a lot of baseball, and they were sitting there and commenting. It's like, oh, wow, you know, Mets players, they have such amazing names like Francisco Lindor. I was like, you do realize that Francisco is like, Frank, right? <laughs> and you can see like all the magic. Uh, it's like, thanks uh, a lot, asshole, for ruining that beautiful Latina yeah. rhythm we had going Tell them about Mookie Wilson. So <laughs> listeners, write us, tell us your name, tell us the stories of your name, ask all of us the stories of our family's names. No one's asked about Butnik in a while or the fact that when We're I got married, nice. I had the socially acceptable time to change my name. And I was like, why now? Right on. Why change that? 
we've come this far together. Anyway, apparently it means something embarrassing in Poland, which I learned when I was in Poland. And the, the guy who ran our fellowship was like, it means every time he said my name, he'd be like, <laughs> truly? It means bubble party. <laughs> emails send us sure. emails uh, at unorthodox at tabletmag.com sign up for the bubble party or leave us a message on our listener line 914-570-4869 let's continue all these really important discourses dialectics conversations on and Jewish more name. We're double dipping this week. Our second Jew of the week is Zach Rosen. He hosts the podcast, The Best Advice Show, and he joins us to share some of the unconventional advice he's received. Zach Rosen, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get to something really, really important, which is the spelling of your name. You are mm -hmm. a Z-A-K. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. How did it happen? <laughs> so here's the thing. My full name is Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y. However, I've always been Zach, and my mom just likes the aesthetic. Of the K. The look of the K on the end and three letters. So it was kind of a design decision for her. And I've never looked back. And then people get upset when I tell them the spelling of my full name. They want me to be Z-A-K-A-R-Y. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not. Your name is also written Comic Sans, just for full design <laughs> effect. Yep, since 84. Yep. Fantastic. So we've been actually having this conversation on our show. We just welcomed our new co-host, Josh. We, of we, course. We discussed whether he's Josh or deal. Joshua. Yeah, very big deal for us. But more importantly... Josh with a K. Yeah, Josh. <laughs> His Hebrew name is Yaakov, so it's not Yehoshua. And we've been talking a lot about this. So we're obsessed with names right now. So what mm. is your Hebrew name? Zohar Shmuel. Nice. Oh, that is wow. good. That is a power play right there. Zohar Shmuel. <laughs> wow, that yeah, is amazing. Zohar so Shmuel. Zohar Shmuel, big Jew, big podcaster. Tell us a little bit about the Best Advice Show. You all are parents, right? Yes. So you might know um, about, do you do the gummy vitamin in your house for your kids? Did you at any point give them? At some point, we did. My 25-year-old yeah. will not take her gummy vitamins. She, uh, she, I think she enjoys gummies. <laughs> <laughs> that's another. That's another episode. Yeah. Well, I like gummies, but my kids. I started giving gummy vitamins a couple years ago, and I was just thinking about the idea of the gummy vitamin. It's tasty. It's soft. It's kind of like candy, but it has nutrients in it, and it's really easy to take. And so I was wondering, like, could I do a podcast that's kind of like a gummy vitamin? Like you're, you're in, you're out, it's sweet, but there's some insight in there and you don't have to spend an hour consuming it. You just kind of take it when you're out the door, heading to work, or some people listen when they're on the toilet, which I'm very honored by. Ah. So it's a, it's a very short show. It's like usually five to 10 minutes and each episode features a different guest giving me one piece of advice. It's ideally something that isn't like platitudinal, but rather something that the listener can hear and be like, oh, I actually want to try this today to make my life better or weirder or more joyful. This seems to be something really inherently Jewish about this whole setup because, you know, you walk into any Jewish setting and whether you ask for it or not, whether you host a podcast <laughs> or you don't, someone will come to you and is like, you know what you should be doing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that is, is that just, did you basically go through your entire life hosting this podcast before you hosted this <laughs> podcast? 
Yeah, I knew that I didn't want to be offering the advice. You know, I like asking questions. We can talk about that as a, you know, as a Jewish type of work. So I liked also the idea that like, you know, StoryCorps, NPR StoryCorps, it's like everyone has a story to tell. And like, yeah, maybe that's true. But like the thing that the producers do really well on StoryCorps is they take an hour long interview and just get it down to the essence. And that's something that might be interesting. And so I thought maybe I could do that with, I, I believe everyone has a piece of advice and that maybe sometimes it takes some coaxing. So sometimes I'll spend 30, 45, 60 minutes talking to them. But then like I distill it down to like just this thing. To the gummy vitamin. To the gummy vitamin. But yeah, so I think everyone has like something they do to just like, just to keep it going. Like it, life is hard. Like what's something that you do in the middle of your day to like not just curl up into a ball? That That is advice to me. What percentage of advice do you think you take from your guests? That's a good question. I need to start tracking it. I try a lot of it. I think only probably a few dozen stick, but I think about all of them. And now I find myself becoming this kind of walking Rolodex of advice when I'm with folks. I'm like, oh, actually, someone just told me this on the show last month. You should maybe consider this. But there's been so much. I mean, as a Jew, I like to talk about pooping <laughs> my bowels. And so there was one that struck me. I was taking a hike with a friend who, who led wilderness trips for years. And we were talking about hypothetically, like if you have to go and you're in the woods and you're by a river, like don't use leaves. Leaves is kind of like what I thought you're supposed to do, but like they can crumble. Like who knows? Maybe they're in your poison ivy. Go down near the riverbed and grab some clean river rocks. Get like four river rocks. Whoa. Which by the way is exactly what they used to do during the time of the Talmud. And there are what? pages upon pages in Tractate Brachot exactly about that. <laughs> is this true? Yep. I want to hear everything about this. I, I think, think we're going to do a follow-up follow episode. episode. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. So I haven't tried that yet, but I encourage folks to use Clean River Rocks. I'm really loving your podcast. Oh, thanks. I like that it's brief, meticulously produced, and that there's something practical in each one. I, I My shoulders sort of rise when I hear uh, people offering advice. I'm always like, ah, mm. do I want advice? But if you can tell me one specific thing that I can try, I find that very, very helpful. And uh, I liked uh, the get rid of what's not serving you in your life. Oh, yeah. Jacqueline Raposo, I listened to. The intuitive advice might be add things to your life to fill it up and enhance your life. But her idea of removing things from your life for a few weeks and seeing and finding out whether that's a thing that actually serves you, I think is great. And that's something I'm going to attempt. Oh, cool. What are you going to remove? Uh, Probably one of us. You know. I'm going to start with sugar, <laughs> which is uh -huh. one of And then I think uh, when I'm feeling strong, either some or all social media, because I think I would like to discover whether or not it is ultimately serving me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's serving us. Yeah. Twitter feed. Don't, don't, don't. Oh, yeah. That. I mean, I'll keep promoting the show. That goes, that's an <laughs> no, exception. No, no, I mean, no, entertainment wise. It's, it's yeah. very, it's a yeah. very like funny Like and subscribe. <laughs> you know, Zach, I'm so interested in your sort of trajectory, right? You've worked in radio forever, but yeah. there seems to be something about parenting that has sort of like been really part of your own arc as a storyteller. You mm. and your wife created this show, Pregnant Pause, with Zach and Shira, spelled mm -hmm. S H I R A. Uh, mm -hmm. for everyone listening at home about just like your decision whether to have a child and then that process. And now you co-host Mom and Dad Are Fighting, which is Slate's parenting show. And so now you sort of found yourself in this world of like advice and questions and answers and are there ever answers? And I'm just wondering, like, is parenthood so central in that to you or is it just sort of happenstance that this all happened in this way? It's happenstance, man. I mean, I made pregnant pause when I was having some deep anxiety about 
whether or not I wanted to have kids. And that's like the great thing about being a narrative podcast producer. You can metabolize and process your anxiety by like making a show. Like I had an excuse to call my rabbi and philosopher and meteorologist friends and talk to my mom. And like, I think had I not had a microphone, maybe people would have been like, okay, you've been talking for a year and a half, Zach, about this decision. But because I was making a show out of it, like it was more socially acceptable. It's respectable. It's acceptable. It's respectable. You're not being a neurotic wreck. You're being a content a producer. Journalist. Yeah. yeah, making work out of it. And really the whole, it all started there with like, up until that point, I was a kind of traditional public radio producer reporter, never having made anything about myself. That was my first personal work. And then some people heard the pregnant pause and that led to indirectly the advice show and to mom and dad are fighting. So I've encouraged people to, uh, if you're kind of struggling with this big life question and you are in the in the journalism space, like it's kind of interesting to make work around something that you genuinely don't know the answer to. And does it continue to shape your relationship? Are you sort of like, well, you know, we're not going to talk about this right now because it's going to be a microphone running in about two hours and we'll save it for the air. <laughs> I think Pregnant Pause, because it was such a long project, I think I got a lot of it out of me. Like, I don't feel the need to compulsively share my own story to any real degree. However, with Mom and Dad are fighting, like every episode we talk about our kids. So, and that's another you guys know podcasts are just a great way to like process stuff. And I don't think it's instead of therapy, it's probably in addition to therapy, but like, I, I just feel blessed that we have this, this weekly thing, right? Like you guys get to come and share yourselves each week. And do you wonder kind of how that would impact your, your day to day if you didn't have this outlet? No, that's true. Sometimes things happen and I'm like, oh, this, this is good for banter. Like this is something mm -hmm. that is maybe funny, but maybe relevant for other people, illustrates a larger point, continues a conversation, overshares about my life. Right. Do, do I wonder? Yeah. I mean, but we, uh, we lost Ted Kaczynski uh, this week, the Unabomber. And I couldn't help but thinking if that guy was around at the time of podcast, it would have been a very different story. Yeah. It'd have been the Unabomber show and he would just be sitting there being like, wow. instead of sending mail bombs, he'd be like, and one more thing about <laughs> technology. It'll be great. Uh-huh. That's true. I did not see this going there, but I'm not mad it did. Well, I've gotten quieter over through the pandemic. It's shut me up and shut me down a little bit. And so mm. having a podcast and knowing at least once a week I have to discuss a bunch of stuff with a bunch of people I'm just really starting to get to know, uh, I find it enhances my life. It gets so me talking. Nice. Yeah. Good. Look at this. Look at us. Are there limits for you on like what you'll say about your kid? Is it at a certain age you'll stop? Like when could we, where are we exploiting them for content? What mm -hmm. do we think? No, it's great. It's a great question. And in fact, mom and dad are fighting. The show has been going for many, many years and parents age out as hosts once their kids get old enough. Usually figure out what they're doing. Yeah. Usually like when they're tweens to say, uh, mom, dad, I don't want you talking about the reason I got in trouble at school or mom, dad, I am 32. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So parents age out and I do like Noah. I remember Noah and I had a conversation that I thought was like so exposed and raw and, and beautiful. But then I asked her if I could talk about it on the show and she said she'd rather I didn't. So when I'm wondering if I should share it, I sometimes ask her, she's almost six. Yeah, I think there is a line, but I don't know what exactly like, what oh, it is. You rather I didn't share in the show? Well, I'd rather <laughs> not spend my hard-earned money buying you Disney stuff. So there. Uh, yeah, it, we're, we're even now. I'm not yeah. taking you to gymnastics today. Right. <laughs> in grades. <laughs> so do you have any advice for us? Hmm. Totally on the spot. Like, have you heard something good that you like besides pooping in the woods? Like, what is something that you're taking in with you now? 
So I was just doing it. That was my advice. It was it was for podcasters. Let just sit in the silence sometimes. Ooh. I think that's a great interview thing. So that be spacious in your conversations and interviews. But personally, I was trying to think like what would be like a good Oh, do you know what's a great one that I haven't aired yet? This idea. No, you know what? I was going to start talking about going to the bathroom again. I don't. <laughs> no, no, that, that uh, is so our spot. Like a thousand percent bring it. Well, Leo, you you know the prayer. Like the prayer that folks say after you make uh, a good bowel movement. Yeah. Wait, it's a good bowel movement or just a bowel Any. movement? Wait, what is the prayer? The prayer is Asher Yatsar. What does it say? It, it thanks God for making you with a certain number of holes out of which you could expel you know, things that are toxic to your body because if one of them were to clog up, you would not be able to stand before God. Holy exactly. shit. And by the way, yeah, in literally. really orthodox circles. There it is, holy circles, shit. Yes, literally, holy shit. Yeah, and, and really orthodox circles, you call the bathroom sometimes the Asher Yatsar room because after the bus. Wait, this is insane. Is this why we talk about poop all the time? It also didn't happen before Josh came on the show. We, yeah. <laughs> Don't look this at me. seems to be a very classy operation. No, I, I, I love it because I think today. it's a great. There's a really great story about Hillel, you know, one of the greatest sages of all time. And he was looking at his students. He's like, guys, I'm going to fulfill like a great mitzvah right now. And all the students are like, oh, my God, like, it's going to be amazing. The rabbi is going to teach us some, like, crazy stuff, like something we've never seen before. Mm. And he gets up and he goes to the bathroom and he starts pooping. Mm. Then he comes out and the student's like, are you fucking kidding? Like, dude, you said you were going to do this, like, great big mitzvah. We're all here waiting. And, like, you just went number two. And he said, do you think if I couldn't do that, I could stand here before God, learn Torah, pray? I couldn't. Everything revolves around our ability to do that. Pay attention. Which I think mm. is really beautiful. I agree. That's and why I think we're it, obsessed with Shammai tried it, but he peed. That's right. <laughs> well, and I think the bathroom prayer, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to like thank God. You can just like be grateful that man, I just was able to pee. I was just able to poop. And like my body is working. Like, you know, we take that for granted. And I think that's just like an example of, oh, we uh we're pretty lucky. A lot of the time, let's let's acknowledge that. So, Zach Rosen, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm going to take this thing about letting the silence be there as a podcaster. It's really hard for us because we are Jews and we yeah. cannot stop interrupting each other and we cannot stop interrupting guests. It's, we are a nightmare to edit. But I think you're right, like being comfortable with that silence, which for us is like if there's silence, I think it's intuitively means like it's boring or what, what's happening. There's no like we, we love that jocular back and forth as Jews. But I like to, I want to take that. I think silence is overrated. And this is one thing that I hate. Like every time you flip on the radio and there's silence, you're like, oh, I'm listening to NPR. Because these people think oh, snap. that Zach liked silent you decisions that, that line. <laughs> are a sign of intelligence. Whereas <laughs> just speak, you know, just talk, work it out. Like this is, it's a tight rope walking type of thing. Just here you are. Go ahead. Entertain people. I think both are, I like jocular. I like the interrupting. But then sometimes if you don't know what to say, Maybe don't say anything. But Liel, I think you know what to say a lot of the time. So if if, if I learned that lesson <laughs> well, so not to say anything when you don't know how to say, I would yeah. <laughs> Can I just say something real quick? Uh, and you don't have to use this, but this is there's this thing, there's this like Ira Glass story about how his mom didn't really accept him being a radio guy until he got on Letterman. Um 
even though he, like, This American Life had been alive for many years and he had won, you know, Peabody's and whatever. My mom, Joe Strauss, and my uncle, her brother, Richard Strauss, are the biggest fans of Unorthodox. <laughs> they went to your live show in Detroit. The idea, and I didn't tell them that I'm going to be on, the idea that oh. I'm on this show, I feel like this is my Letterman moment for them. Like now, <laughs> That's so great. now they will That's accept my touching. career 20 years Joe into and it. Richard Strauss, we, we love you very much. And we commend you for producing such a fine young man. Zohar, Zohar Shmuel, the best advice show. We are so excited to have you on. And we know our listeners are going to start tuning in and we'll, we'll love your show and love the little nuggets of advice. Poop related so and not. Baruch Hashem. J. Crew, ever wondered what the Rambam's handwriting actually looked like? Or what about the theological ruminations running through Sir Isaac Newton's head when that apple fell down on it? Did you know that in addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent also wrote love poems? These and dozens of other amazing treasures are now available to view in 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, a stunning fine art volume richly illustrated with high-quality photographs of manuscripts, books, maps, posters, music, and more, accompanied by stories about these significant works and the intriguing people behind them from one of my favorite places in the world, the National Library of Israel. The book, again, is 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, now available on Amazon. And also, on October 22nd, the National Library of Israel opens its new building, a stunning architectural feat where these and many other objects of our heritage and culture will be on display for you to experience firsthand. So make sure to include Jerusalem's newest destination in your travel plans. The National Library of Israel, your story, our story, and one of my favorite places in the world. Today, we are sharing the third installment of our exploration into the collection of the National Library of Israel. On today's dive into the archive, we're talking about the famed Indian civil rights activist, Ben Kingsley. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi, who, it turns out, had some surprising opinions about Jews and um, at least one, shall we say, questionable friendship. Now, Gandhi, he wrote a few letters to Hitler, which are kind of shocking. He, he calls him dear friend. This is one of the more shocking quotes from this article. He says, if I were a Jew and were born in Germany, I would claim Germany as my home, even as the tallest Gentile German may, and challenge him to shoot me or cast me in a dungeon. I would refuse to be expelled or submit to discriminating treatment. Gandhi was saying if he were a German Jew, he would stick around while Hitler went about erasing the Jews and patiently await execution. To which Hitler would have said, works for me. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and welcome back to The Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. I'll be guiding you across history and the globe 
through this library's amazing collection of documents, artifacts, and relics. I was speaking earlier to Zach Rothbart, who used to work as the library's international spokesperson. He was telling me about the library's Gandhi fight. Yeah, the Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian civil rights activist who inspired an entire national movement through nonviolent resistance. The Gandhi, who is widely considered a great man of history and an inspiration to millions around the globe. But it's that Gandhi who also held some shocking opinions about, well, the Jews, who felt the Jews of Germany should go like sheep to the slaughter and non-violently resist one of the most violent regimes of the 20th century, who wrote letters to Adolf Hitler and called him my friend. Gandhi got it so effing wrong about the Jews. Gandhi was born in India in 1869 and lived until 1948, just before the State of Israel was established. If ever there was a time to be on the right side of the concept of Jewish self-determination, it was then. And yet. Gandhi kind of remained silent on the topic of Zionism until he first said something publicly in around 1921. And Gandhi was not a fan of Zionism. He was a very educated man, of course, a lawyer and knew about a lot of religions and philosophies and so forth. But his understanding of Judaism was extremely limited. He didn't see the Jewish people as really a nation. He saw it as the ancient biblical Judaism. Gandhi did have a lot of actual real Jews in his life, real friends, Jews that might have been able to educate him on our complicated history. However, Gandhi also had political views based in India that didn't quite mesh with the Jewish struggle for statehood. A lot of it was internal in India, right? His vision was having this united India. He was working and praying that the Muslims and the Hindus specifically would be able to form a cohesive country. So because Gandhi was effectively arguing for his own version of a one-state solution back home, where Hindus and Muslims would live peacefully under one roof, spoiler alert, while beautiful in theory, didn't go so well in reality he couldn't openly advocate for separate Jewish and Muslim states abroad. But the Jews fighting for a Jewish homeland understood that having Gandhi openly against them wasn't a good look. He was, well, a political celebrity and a pretty smart guy, and it was worth it to try to get him on their side. So the Jewish agency actually sent people to try to convince Gandhi about Zionism. But it did not go well. In 1938, Gandhi finally publishes his thoughts on Zionism and his thoughts on the impending Holocaust, basically, right? We're talking about November 1938, literally a few days after Kristallnacht. And he makes it clear in the beginning of his letter, he says, it's not without hesitation that I venture to offer my views on this very difficult question. He says he didn't really want to write about it, okay? But some of his friends have asked him to. So he says, my sympathies are all with the Jews. But then he goes on and says that, and I'll quote here, Palestine belongs to the Arabs in the same sense that England belongs to the English or France to the French. And that's maybe his most famous quote on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I guess Gandhi didn't think that Jews belonged in Israel because he thought they weren't from there, even though 5,000 years of history say otherwise. Lots of people thought like this and still do today. Know what a lot of people don't do? Tell the Jews of Europe prior to the Holocaust to basically suck it up. 
Which brings us to another way Gandhi got it wrong about the Jews. Here's Rothbard again, reading from the same 1938 letter. Then he gets to Nazism and he says, The German persecution of the Jews seems to have no parallel in history. If there ever could be a justifiable war in the name of and for humanity, a war against Germany to prevent the wanton persecution of a whole race would be completely justified. But I do not believe in war. Gandhi wrote this letter in November of 1938, just after Kristallnacht. That would have been a great time to take down Hitler. But, you know, violence is bad. And don't worry, Gandhi's got a much better solution for the Jews of Europe. So basically, Gandhi's argument is that Jews all over the world, they don't need a homeland. They need to adopt the homes in which they live. And he says explicitly, this is, I mean, in my opinion, one of the more shocking quotes from this article. He says, if I were a Jew and were born in Germany and earned my livelihood there, I would claim Germany as my home, even as the tallest Gentile German may, and challenge him to shoot me or cast me in a dungeon. I would refuse to be expelled or submit to discriminating treatment. Response Hitler, works for me. <laughs> So, Gandhi feels bad for the Jews of Europe, but he doesn't believe in war. So he doesn't believe in fighting against Hitler, and he doesn't think that the Jews deserve a nation or that they should all leave Europe. He instead thinks that they should practice satyagraha, his form of non-violent resistance, against a murderous, annihilationist regime. Unsurprisingly, Jews were not particularly swayed. And good thing, because it only got worse. There are Gandhi's letters to Hitler. Which are truly, I mean, I invite you to look them up. They're kind of kind of shocking. He, he calls him dear friend. And basically... Dear friend, as one vegetarian to another, <laughs> must we really? And so he wrote, We have no doubt about your bravery or devotion to your fatherland, nor do we believe that you are the monster described by your opponents. But your own writing and pronouncements and those of your friends and admirers leave no room for doubt that many of your acts are monstrous and unbecoming of human dignity. Gandhi, the pacifist symbol of all that is good, wrote a letter to Adolf Hitler commending his bravery and devotion to his fatherland and calling him his friend. If we can take a moment to put the whole Hitler business in a box, maybe pretend this bonkers misstep didn't happen, there's a world in which maybe Gandhi did have a soft spot for the Jews. He was actually friends with them, some of them even very close. And we have a very small envelope here, I guess the size of a cell phone. It's addressed to A.E. Shochet, who is the head of the Bombay Zionist organization. <laughs> And the all-powerful all BZO. Yeah. Exactly. At the time, Mumbai, India, was known as Bombay. In 1939, Gandhi met with A.E. Shohat, who headed the Bombay Zionist Organization. Shohat tried to talk to Gandhi about Zionism. Basically, nothing more comes out of this meeting except for one Rosh Hashanah greeting card from Mahatma Gandhi. And that's what we're looking at right here. 
So first of all, it's a smallish paper, surprisingly in good shape, considering the fact that it's now 70-odd years old. It is written in what is truly an atrocious handwriting. You think it's... Uh, I don't know if it's that low. It's legible. We can Ish. read it. We, we can read it. Let's do that. We can read I'll, it. I'll let you do that. Okay, <laughs> so... It's dated, okay, 1st of September, 1939. That's the day the Nazis invaded Poland. And he says, Dear Shochet, you have my good wishes for your new year. How I wish the new year may mean an era of peace for your afflicted people. Yours sincerely, M.K. Gandhi. And uh, it's an intense piece of paper especially given the context, the historical context, and the context of Gandhi's somewhat problematic views around Nazism, around the Holocaust, that he's sending his best wishes, you know, to the Jewish people. After the Holocaust, Gandhi kept mostly quiet about the Jews. Maybe he knew what he said was problematic, or maybe not. Shortly before Gandhi himself, of course, is assassinated, he did call the Holocaust the greatest crime of our time, but he still maintained, and I quote, the Jews should have offered themselves to the butcher's knife. They should have thrown themselves into the sea from cliffs. It would have aroused the world and the people of Germany. As it is, they succumbed anyway in their millions. By now, we know what Gandhi is saying. The Jews just needed to make the active choice to be victims. And that, in fact, might have saved them. Which is not only problematic and quite honestly offensive, it's the exact opposite of what we needed to do. Sorry, Gandhi, we didn't need Satyagraha to overcome our oppression. We needed to defend ourselves with violence if needed, like we did in Israel to achieve independence. Oh, but guess what? He thought we were doing it wrong there too. And by the way, he uses very similar wording in his letter on Zionism, where he says that Jews can only settle in Palestine by the goodwill of the Arabs. They can offer satyagraha in front of the Arabs and offer themselves to be shot or thrown into the Dead Sea without raising a finger against them. They'll find the world opinion in their favor in their religious aspiration. Essentially, the Jews should throw themselves into the Dead Sea. But then it would only float. Yeah, right. That makes Good no point. sense. Well, he'd never been here. As I said, he wasn't very well versed in Jewish culture and history, so I guess his geography wasn't great either. Gandhi, despite his Rosh Hashanah letter, despite the fact that his quote-unquote sympathies were with the Jews, and despite him calling the Holocaust the greatest crime of his time, he chose nonviolence at all cost. So I guess the bottom line is that at least he was consistent. He kept his beliefs. He believed in this nonviolence. If in his heart he realized afterwards that at very least his views on the Holocaust were wrong, maybe, maybe, but he was consistent. To which the only thing left to say is namaste. Namaste. <laughs> The archive is created with the support of the National Library of Israel. To learn more about this and other items in the collection of the National Library of Israel, and you should, head over to nli.org.il.
Okay, time for some mazel tubs. I will start us off by wishing a very hearty mazel tov because as we record on Friday morning, tis the last day of school at the Heschel School here on the Upper West Side of sunny Manhattan where both my kids go and I want to wish all the faculty and staff and students and families a mazel tov for another amazing year of really, truly building community. See you in the fall. Or as the kids say, I just learned about this. Do you know about hags? Mm. Some of my kids have a great summer. And it's just all hags, hags. Uh, it's like, what? Have a great summer. Like, is in like medieval Nothing witches? means anything anymore. It's like, no, it's just have a good summer. Oh, but I is it disappointing if you get a hag? Is it like, dude, come yeah, up with something? Yeah, it's, it's a bit like, you know, HB, like, you know, the happy birthday. HBD, the, yeah. yeah. TGYL. By, by the way, can, can kids even like write by hand anymore? No, they don't. It's so all So they can only do hags. It's Literally, all we have. Hags half, for days. Half of that yearbook was hags and the other was LFGM, which is Let's F Go Mets. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I do like that. That's the yearbook. So uh, hags to everyone at the Heschel School. LFGM. Mm-hmm. Let, let's F and go, Molina. I've got one. I've got a major mazel tov from <laughs> Miles Cross, son of our fabulous producer, Josh Cross. Miles is graduating from Bronx Science. So congrats to him and to all the New York City students who are graduating. Can I add another? Yeah. The ding, Leopoldstadt <laughs> softball team uh, won our third game yesterday. Oh, we wow. took down the Lion King. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And that's like you a very athletic cast with all the yeah, yeah. Those, those Well, they're all, they're all, they play with their puppets, so they're not that good. <laughs> the giraffe is <laughs> yeah, like trying right, to. Exactly. It's a giraffe, huge strike zone. It's it's so funny that you're like, you're immersed in this world because so my husband, Ben, plays on the Wall Street Journal softball team. Ah. And he is very good at softball. But yesterday. Do they play behind a paywall? <laughs> <laughs> yesterday, I actually brought Edith. They actually lost to BuzzFeed, though. Mm. But we did get to see a little bit of it, so. Well, no Buzzfeed, muscles there. BuzzFeed won the game, but lost their jobs. <laughs> so take that, wow. BuzzFeed. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> no holds barred this episode. NHB. Oh, <laughs> NHB. Wait, do you know about family holdback? Family holdback. Have you heard of this? We talked, this came up on the show. Uh, we do that all the time. Wait, really? If we haven't made, prepared enough food, family holdback. Yeah, wow. I, that's and absolutely that, thing. And that's that the exact phrase we use. Your grown up family or your childhood family? That is my grown up current family. Okay. We're like, family holdback. We didn't make enough. Amazing. Someone wrote in and was like, is that a Jewish thing? I guess so. But I, apparently everyone it does it. It was so weird to me, the concept of not having prepared enough. Like, literally, that never, <laughs> I will ever. say, generally, we over-prepare as a way to avoid family holdback. Right. But, but that is know. a concept yeah, that FHB everybody on the knows. Yeah. All I have today is a farewell to literary lion, Robert Gottlieb, mm. who was a famed book editor and the person behind the scenes of a lot of these amazing works that we all sort of have on our bookshelf to look smart. And I did not know about him until I watched the documentary his daughter made. It's called Turn Every Page. It's about his relationship Phenomenal with Robert Caro movie. and like the wait for Robert Caro to turn in his final manuscript. They're both in their 90s. And of course, you know, the, the subtext of the film is that time is not on their side. And so we say goodbye to Robert Gottlieb. And I recommend everyone watch that film. I Concur, he came to speak to us when I was in a graduate school, not to be named at a university that should remain nameless. And at some point he said, you know, and it didn't seem like it was a practice line. He was just, you know, sitting on stage looking very regal. He said, you know, you really can accomplish whatever you want, if only for the simple fact that there is very rarely someone applying equal or greater pressure trying to stop you. Mm. It's like, fuck yeah, man, that's completely correct. Love it. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. Tell us what that means. Blessed be the one true judge. But what's the ZL? Zichrono Levracha. May okay. his or her memory be a blessing. 
is also ZTSL, in the memory of this righteous person. It's also ZZ Top, who look like they're Jewish, but they're not. All right, that is it for our show today. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Next week, for the first time ever, our entire team spanning continents is going to be in the same place. We're all going to be in New York together. It's going to be amazing. As always, our episode art is by the wonderful Esther Werdiger. If you're from Melbourne, you probably know her. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. She's from Scarsdale, but went to camp with me. Our theme music is by Golem, and our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us emails at unorthodoxatablebank.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. That's it for today. Shalom, friends. Hags to all of you. Guys, this is a we we are a raunchy people. We are.